0: Welcome, everybody. It is Monday at 5 o'clock. I am at the beautiful television studio in Newport, Ritchie, Florida at WeBeam TV. And we're ready for another episode of 62 Who Knew. So as always, I want to thank the guests. Uh, Last week, again, we had just a little bit uh, more than 70,000 viewers. Thank you all so much for continuing to allow 62 Who Knew to grow. Uh, Today, uh, we have one of our favorite panelists bet. He's becoming a regular, um, you know. He's my Jay Leno. Um, to you know, Johnny Carson had Jay. I have Peter Gellbach. That's it. Boom. Um, but he's joining us today uh, with a, a not only a friend but a professional acquaintance of his that he introduced me to years ago, and uh, I'm going to get to his uh, bio and introduction in just a minute. But like always, let me straighten up my tire. Let like always, I want to. Um, tell our new viewers or give our new viewers just a little synopsis of what 62 Who Knew is. Uh, this is our 92nd show. Obviously, we started out 92 weeks ago uh, with no viewers, and uh, we're now averaging anywhere from 65 to 85,000 viewers. I'm looking forward to that first time uh, where we break the 100,000. That's per week, by the way. So the... Uh, the method or the theory of 62 Who Knew has been generally accepted. And again, I want to thank all my great guests in the past and, uh, of course, uh, our viewing audience for allowing us to keep grow. And now, of course, as most of you know, for the last three weeks, uh, we are also being simulcast uh, as a podcast on all of the different platforms that you can view podcasts on. So for our new viewers, what is the premise of 62 Who Knew? Why has it grown to uh, 70,000, 80,000 viewers per week? And I'm going to tell you. As everyone approaches 62, and when I say everyone, I mean about 99% of this great country. As everybody approaches the age of 62, we, we all kind of have the same questions. Uh, the same questions that our fathers asked, probably the same questions that their fathers asked. Should I take Social Security? Should I defer it to a later time? I'm not sure I wanna stop working. Have I saved enough? Do I need long-term care insurance? I wonder if I still need that life insurance. It's, it is actually getting more expensive as I got older. Uh, should I be investing more in the stock market or should I be more conservative in my investments? Mutual funds, annuities? What type of health insurance should I be looking at now? And the questions go on and on. And what's amazingly unique is that I'm asking these questions now because I turned 62 just five months ago. My father asked those questions. His father asked those questions. But my generation, the generation that will be turning 62 in the next 14 years, 10,000 people a day in America turning the age of 62, we have one different hurdle. We have one different bump in the road that our fathers... And their fathers didn't have. And that is the double edged sword, the mixed blessing, if you would, of longer lifespans. There is no doubt in the last three decades that technology, modern science, medical breakthroughs have elongated our lifespans. Um, I mean, look at my age. I remember all of us getting chicken pox, all of us getting measles, um, all the you know, mumps gone. I remember. Um, Unfortunately, when certain types of men's cancer, whether it be prostate cancer or women's cancer, cervical cancer, you got that, it was a death warrant. Uh, Now in many, many cases, we have 80 and 90% cure rates. Um, Look at the terrible disease of AIDS, that in the 80s, if you got it, it was a death warrant. Now you get the proper medicine and you live a great life. So longer lifespans, although sounds great, is in fact a double-edged sword because when you get to 62 and you start to think about retirement, very few people actually realize that according to the AMA, if you've lived this long already, you have a 50-50 shot of making it to 90. You have just slightly less than a 50-50 shot of making it into your 90s. And according from our friends from the... uh, Weitzman Institute, that has been our guest three times on the show, or four times on the show, um, with new medical breakthroughs in the next decade or so, that could well be into the hundreds. So who knew at 62 that you still had half the time that you've already been on this planet? You still have half that time less, another 30 years. And I said at the beginning of this synopsis, only 1% of this great country can live financially, with security and a nice lifestyle in those 30 years. The rest of us, we need some help. And that is the purpose of this TV show, 62 Who Knew, to bring on different experts every week to talk about some of the things that I brought up earlier. Long-term care insurance, reverse mortgages, Medicare and Medicare supplemental policies, Medicaid, do you need a will or do you need a trust? Uh, everything that we have talked about has interest to all of us. And if not to you, if you're one of our younger members, then to your mom and dad or your grandmother and grandfather. So that is the premise of 62 Who Knew. For a while, we were playing with 65 and were still alive, but it didn't test well. So we went with 62 who knew? So that's our premise for the show. I want to thank you all for being here. And without further ado, we are going to bring up our two guests tonight. Uh, We usually have two or three. That's our new premise in 2021. Tonight we have two. So um, Rob, if you'd like to bring up these two nice gentlemen. On the left, we have one of our uh, favorite visitors and one of my closest friends and In life, you've all heard a lot about him from me uh, over the last 92 weeks. Mr. Peter Gelbwachs, thank you for being back, Peter. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. And um, this nice man who, let's see, who introduced me to this incredible elder law attorney with a national reputation who's been named a super lawyer in both New York and Florida and gotten awards for Let's see, who introduced me to this national? Oh, that's <laughs> right, Peter Gelblacks, who's the person who introduced me to everybody pretty much um, that helped me in my life. I will say he did not introduce me to my two ex-wives. Maybe if he did, I'd still be married to one of them. But he did not introduce (laughs) me to my two ex-wives. But without further ado, I'd like everybody uh, to meet Mr. Howard Crooks. Uh, I met Howard, oh my, it's hard to believe, almost five, six years ago. I think we met in Boca at P.F. Chang's. um, That's right. And and we're Jewish, so we have to do that. We have to go to the Chinese food, you know, that comes before the temple. Mr. Crooks' bio is massive. I'm going to cut it down a little because I have a lot of questions that I know our viewers are going to want to hear from you. Um, But Mr. Crooks' professional practice is devoted to elder law and special needs law. This is so important. Estate planning and trust and various estate matters, including representing seniors and persons with special needs. Uh, I mean, such a highly specialized uh, thing, and their families in connections with the asset preservation planning. Um, Medicaid planning, which I want to touch with, that's a little personal to me. Um, I try, uh, this is your first time on the show, Howard, but I try not to make this into a reverse mortgage show. Um, I didn't want people to think that that's the reason I was doing it, although reverse mortgages do play a part in retirement planning. But one of the things that always breaks my heart is when someone calls me and says, Michael, I got a reverse mortgage from someone else. I told them I was on Medicaid, but because I took in $100,000 and now have a cash flow, I was thrown off of Medicaid. And I've been teaching for the better part of 10 years, you can get a reverse mortgage when you're on Medicaid or an other government-entitled program, but only if you do it with a highly specialized elder law attorney uh, setting up a certain type of trust and doing it in the right way. And it breaks my heart uh, when people lose uh, some of their government um, you know, uh, benefits by doing it the wrong way. And of course, Mr. Crooks is also the past president of NALA, uh, the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, which is a uh, staggering association that he was nice enough to uh, arranged for me to speak at some years ago, and I had a ball. It was in Arizona, wasn't it? Got it. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I remember because it was like 110 degrees, and I was just dying. And everybody that lived there would look at you and go, but it's a dry heat. I, uh, but it's still 110 <laughs> degrees. That, yeah, 110. But it's still 110, yeah. So welcome, sir. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Howard. Thank we really you. appreciate it. Really great to be here. All right. Well, I'm going to ask the first question that I ask everybody. It doesn't make a difference: uh, insurance person, financial planner, travel agent, uh, anything. It doesn't make a difference. Um, obviously, with the great background and education that you had in the law schools that you attended, you could have went into any part of the legal world. What made you pick elder law as your specialty? In many cases. We have found Peter I mock, um, that a lot of times it's something personal. I don't know if that's true in, in your case.
1: Well, it most certainly is, and in fact, I did go into corporate and securities law right out of law school. I went to a Wall Street law firm, and I did the gig where you work until 3 o'clock in the morning uh, most nights, and then you give up your Saturdays and your Sundays. And after a few years of doing that, I decided I wanted to do something different. Um, And uh, when you open up your own practice, you tend to do whatever comes in the door. And I was fortunate that what came in the door were a few cases involving nursing homes and people trying to afford the cost of nursing home care. So I had had to learn that area very quickly. And one of my first cases had to do with a woman uh, living in Westchester, New York, whose husband was only 45 years old, and uh, he uh, was in a nursing home uh, because he had uh, ALS, and um, so he needed round-the-clock care. And I got approached by his wife, who had two high school age kids and a home uh, in Westchester County, and said to me, uh, I heard that somebody down the hall from my husband is, is on Medicaid, And frankly, I'm working two jobs. I am a Hebrew school teacher and an aerobics instructor, but the cost of the nursing home is taking away all of our savings, and I'm afraid I'm going to lose my home. And so I did all the research, and I figured out that I could help this woman and this family protect the family home. Mm -hmm. And she had two nearly college-age kids, so she was worried about college costs as well. And in addition there was a um, Reader's Digest pension that her husband was receiving, and that was all going to the nursing home cost of care, and she wondered whether there was any way that somehow she could get some of that to live on. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, through a family court proceeding, we were able to have a judge order that she could get his Reader's Digest disability pension instead of it going towards the cost of care and that the the government program that we know of as Medicaid Uh, would pay the nursing home. And I just, I have to tell you, Michael and Peter, this, when we went to this hearing, the entire family was there, including her husband, who was wheelchair bound. When the judge issued the order saying that she could get his income, um, the whole family came over to me. They were jumping up and down. They were hugging me And at that moment, I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life because, you know, in my corporate and securities world, I worked for very, very high-end brokerage firms. And uh, while it was academically stimulating to me, the level of gratification that I experienced in that moment uh, never reached that level. And so that's when I knew that I wanted to deal with real people, with real-life problems, and help them solve those problems with my uh, my knowledge my expertise my my lawyering skills and it just gave me a tremendous uh, amount of of grat- gratification and satisfaction to be able to work with people in this way so i decided to focus my career in the elder one special needs planning arena
0: isn't that amazing i mean that person to walk in and peter isn't it just amazing that a uh... I'm, I'm gonna to have to
2: yeah, what How he left out was he said about his, his skills and he said about his expertise, he left out the word heart. Man yeah. has a lot of heart. He has a caring heart and, and you know in order to be in, uh, effective in what he does, you really do have to have a concern for your client and not just uh, for the bottom line. Profitability. So, you know, kudos to you. How are you? Yeah, You've absolutely. Isn't
0: it amazing Michael, how many of? You- I just want to add one
1: more thing. Oh, I don't want to be remiss. Uh, so, when I was growing up, I had a grandmother who we called Nanny, and uh, she was my father's mother, and I just had the best relationship with her. And when I got my driver's license at age seventeen, I would drive from Merrick, Long Island, to Forest Hills, Queens. I would spend the day with her and we would hang out in her apartment and she would, you know, she would make me food. We would go walking on Austin Boulevard and we would go shopping. And I just thought the world of her. Uh, She was the most vibrant, opinionated woman I had ever known. And I think that having her as one of my grandparents really laid a strong foundation for me to appreciate all of the, the wealth of knowledge that People who are of a certain age have accumulated throughout their lifetime, and I always found it fascinating to talk to her about things that happened in an, in another time when I I wasn't even born yet. Um, and and I just that relationship I think is also an important reason why I have such respect for the elderly and people with disabilities, uh, and and it couples with my. Um, feeling of gratification um, from the case that I shared with you to just round out the whole picture of why I went into this area.
0: That that just gives me the chills. It really does. And I started to say before, Peter, isn't it amazing how many of these, you know, hugely, hugely uh, national, successful people, you know, that you have introduced me to, uh, but the starting story is a mom or a grandma, in your particular case, your own mom, um, you know, in Mark's particular case, his dad. Um, it, it's just amazing that the people that are, you know, in this crazy world, and it is a crazy world, and it's a cold world. I don't mean that temperature-wise. I mean that emotionally-wise. And sometimes I think it's getting colder and colder. But there still is a commonality um, for successful people driven by passion and, quite frankly, love rather than the, uh, the, the almighty dollar. You know, um, it's just amazing to me, uh, people well, like yourselves.
2: All right. So. Sometimes, uh, tragedy sometimes can bring you to a different level of commitment and dedication, uh, that you, uh, didn't expect and that you can learn from and grow from and, and then share. And it sounds corny, but it's real because no. I have experienced it. As you said, with, with many very successful people that have, uh, come from a different place and decided to, uh, to bring themselves and to help people along the way. So it's a real win-win situation.
0: Always win-win. All right, well, let's get down to it. Um, and I know, you know, these questions, uh, a few of them, I know we're not going to get to all of them. And that's why I'm, I'm already inviting you back <laughs> and we haven't done the first question yet. So I hope you're going to come back. But, you know, as a novice years ago, I didn't know this. I'm still a novice compared to both of you but I I do want to discuss the importance of having advanced directives in place for people because now that I have been in the reverse mortgage business for 10 years again I can't tell you how broken hearted sometimes I am that I can't help somebody because one of their relatives is not in a position to help themselves but they didn't they didn't prepare for someone else needing to help them and everything's sort of stuck in the red tape. So, you know, again, the importance of, of advanced directives, I, I'd love you to cover that. I know it's a, a broad topic.
1: Sure. So um, I I guess I'll start off with um, the following uh, story from my own family. So it, when you turn 18 in my household, you are dragged down to my law office <laughs> and you are signing the uh, advanced directives in Florida. There are five of them. Um, and uh, we do that because people don't realize that when their children turn 18, the parents, the natural parents, they, they don't have the legal authority to continue to make decisions for their children. Mm-hmm. And that includes sending them off to college. It includes even if you're paying their tuition bill, you don't have access to their grades But God forbid if something happens to them, some kind of an accident, they become incapacitated. You as the parents do not have a natural right to start making medical and financial decisions for them. And so it's really important right at that point to have advanced directives giving people the legal authority to make all of your financial and medical decisions. Um, Certainly with regard to people who are uh, disabled and people who are elderly, uh, anybody in between 18 and any other age, anything can happen to any one of us. We all know that, I think. And it can happen very spontaneously and without warning. And so it's really important for people to have their advanced directives, which include a durable power of attorney, a healthcare surrogate, a living will, a HIPAA representative document, and a pre-need guardian document, all of which serve to let people know, banks, financial institutions, healthcare providers, that if you should become incapacitated, this is the person or persons that you have designated to make any and all medical and financial decisions on your behalf. And if you don't have these documents, then your family may have to go through a rather uh, long and public guardian proceeding where all uh, confidential information is made available in the court system. You might end up with infighting over who should be the guardian amongst family members where you could have avoided that by simply taking the time to sign these documents on your own. And unfortunately, some people wait too long and they're already incapacitated. Once you're incapacitated, these documents are not valid. You, You cannot legally get these documents signed once you no longer have mental capacity and so it's really important when you're healthy and well and with capacity to have these documents in place
0: Yeah, you know, it's just almost spooky to any parent i never you know i, I thought i knew um what advanced directors were you know but all of my children are above 21 one of them is married and and uh i just assumed that, you know, God forbid I'm in a hospital, they got into an accident, that I would be able to make decisions for them, you know, if they weren't conscious or weren't capable. And what you're saying is because they're above 18, I'm not?
1: Yeah, so there is, happens to be in Florida, but not, not every state. There happens to be a family hierarchy by statute that would allow other family members to make decisions. But if you want your wishes to be carried out As opposed to having the legislature decide for you, then it's really important for you to think through what your wishes are, express that in writing, and designate the person who has the authority to make those decisions for you. The other thing, Michael, I would say is that even if uh, you were to be able to make decisions for somebody else without these documents in place, if there's a conflict with you and another family member, if there's a conflict between you and the healthcare provider, for example, um, if, if um, you want them to do a certain thing and they think that's not the direction that they want to go and you want to force their hand, you won't be able to without uh, a more uh, a written document that gives you that authority. You may find yourself in court trying to enforce your position without the document to back yourself up. So it's really there to cover a whole spectrum of issues that may, may come up um, and not having the document is not as good as having them and you having it's really it's self-will, it's self-direction It's right. saying this is what I would want and this is who I want to express my wishes for me if I become incapacitated. We all have that right as uh, you know, citizens of every state in this country, um, but uh, so few people actually exercise that right.
0: And you know, emotionally, isn't it funny, Peter? Emotionally, when we think of older people, we know we have to have that in place. You know, my parents are gone, obviously, but my dad, my mother—I got to know that's in place. Right. But we don't think of it for the younger people. Yet, it's, for lack of better terms, it's more heartbreaking when you can't do something for one of your children, you know, uh, than your parents. I don't think you—I don't mean you love them different, but it's more heartbreaking. Yeah, it's amazing. I've never actually yeah. thought of that. It really is.
1: Uh, uh, remember, remember, Michael, the Karen Ann Quinlan uh, case yes. years hey. ago, where you had the parents and the husband of this now disabled woman at odds for years over the proper course of treatment for Karen Ann Quinlan. And that's the kind of thing that could have been avoided had there been properly executed advanced advance directives naming one person to make that decision for her.
0: Yeah. That was, that made national and international news. Um, we don't have many young viewers, but for our young viewers who have no idea what we're talking about, go ahead and Google Carol Ann Quick, uh, uh, what? Carol uh,
1: Karen. Karen. Karen.
0: Karen. Yeah, um, yeah, that, that was on the front of every newspaper uh, for months, if not close to a year, wasn't it?
1: What well, years, expand years, year proceedings, like 10 years. 10 years.
0: Unbelievable.
1: Okay. Uh, so if you don't mind, Mike, I no, want to ask
2: Howie a, a question in reference to what he just said. So we all, we don't all know this, but we should know about the importance of these documents and the, the packaging of, of the, you know, the different ones. Um, how do you address the issue with uh, people with limited resources? I think that's one of the concerns why some people don't go down that route of, of taking care of what they should, because they're concerned they don't have the funds that they think is going to cost you know for them to execute those documents
1: well michael am i allowed to do an approximate fee range for these documents
0: uh my show you can do anything you want
1: okay (laughs) so um generally speaking i think you can expect to um be quoted fees of anywhere from maybe uh 150 to 300 dollars for an advance directive let me caution people against um, doing what many people do, which is they, uh, they will go to the Internet because of the cost issue, Peter, that you're raising. Um, and there might be perfectly good documents on the Internet, but here's where it gets dicey. Number one, every state has its own documents that are statutorily authorized, and you have to make sure that you have a document that complies with the law of your state. Number two, these documents are being changed constantly. So if you get a document that is old or stale, you may unknowingly sign it, only to find out that it's not valid any longer under current law. In fact, New York just enacted a new power of attorney statute. It'll become effective sometime in June. And so if you find through a Google search uh, an older document And you sign that, you thought you've taken care of your affairs, but you haven't. There are also execution requirements that have to be complied with. And so if you miss out on an important detail for execution of the documents, then again, you think you've planned out. And only to find out at the time that it's being produced to a third party and you want it to be honored, it won't be. So it's interesting because the documents serve very simple needs, but the documents themselves are not so simple. And you've just got to be really careful if you're going to try to do it without, um, you know, without incurring these, these costs.
0: And there's almost no doubt yeah. in my mind, by the time you find out that those documents are not proper, it may be too late to correct them.
1: Well, and it's also penny wise and pound foolish, right? Because if you have a document, you thought it was good, you thought it was valid, then your family goes to use it. It's not. Now they have to do guardianship. Let me tell you something. Uh, relative to the cost of these documents, guardianship easily costs 10 to 15 times more. Oh, easily. And And that's why I brought that up because it's not that
2: much money.
0: No, not at uh, all.
2: To take care of it on the front end.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been through a couple of uh, trying to get guardianships for people um, that needed certain things through my mortgage company, and uh, they needed them quick. There's no way to rush that guardianship process. They don't want to hear quick. It took time. Um, all right, let's go, uh, let's switch a little, you know, same topic, but different. Um, I know there's all different types of way to plan your estate. Um, you know, through my financial career, I guess I've seen two basics. There's probably a lot more. There's the one that has the will, and then there's the one that has the trust. they usually a, a revoc- revocable, usually a revocable trust. You know, what is the difference between those two is, is, is one better than the other? Are they different? Is one for a, Quite frankly, higher income, higher asset person. Um, You know, uh, what is the difference between having an estate based, you know, will estate based uh, or revocable trust?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, Michael. So a will based plan means that your core estate planning document is the last will and testament. Right. And what that means is that all of your assets are going to be disposed of per your wishes as expressed. In this document there is a proceeding called probate that has to occur when you die with a will and that proceeding is designed to allow the court to determine whether that will is your most recent will and properly and validly expresses your wishes it also requires this process requires that all of your heirs are notified of the proceeding so that they can anybody can come forward and object they may object and say hold on a second, that wasn't the decedent's last will and testament, I have the most recent one, or when the decedent signed this last will and testament, she was incapacitated, so you should court, you should not honor this document. So that's the purpose of a probate proceeding. Now, is probate so bad? Well, it, it it's not so bad as long as everybody gets along, right? And if everybody doesn't get along, then it can be pretty arduous and and lengthy and conflicted and it can span years uh depending on how much people are fighting over in the estate so then it can be um, but for the most part most probate proceedings are fairly plain vanilla we handle them all the time in my law firm and i don't think they're so terrible but there can be some uh some cons if you will for example if you have a piece of real estate in your estate when you die And oftentimes what happens when a person passes away, people in the community uh, become aware of this. They know somebody or they themselves want to buy the property. They'll approach the kids or a family member and say, listen, I'm very interested. And the family member, if there's a probate proceeding, won't be able to do anything immediately with that property. Why? Because the probate process can take months. Sometimes it could take uh, even just a plain vanilla probate matter can take four to six months to go through its entire process, and before the personal representative is given the authority to dispose of all of the assets. Well, by that time, the person may no longer be interested. They Mm -hmm. just want a quick deal. They want to get in before anybody else has a chance and before it's listed uh, on the MLS. Um, And so you may lose that opportunity through the probate process. Another example is, and, you know, unfortunately, there are heirs that want to get their hands on the money much quicker <laughs> than the probate process. And so uh, the, doing a will, you just have to know that there is a probate process. It has to be gone through. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it does have that negative of delay. And if you want to avoid that, how can you avoid that? Well, you can avoid that by doing a revocable trust, also known as a living trust or an intervivos trust and what this does is it appoints trustees to manage your assets now when you set up a revocable trust you yourself will serve as the initial trustee but if you should become incapacitated then at that point a successor trustee steps into your shoes and the reason why this addresses the problem with probate is that the moment you pass away your trust has designated a successor trustee that does not require one to go through the probate process in order for that successor trustee to start taking action with regard to the assets in the trust so for example going back to the real estate if a piece of real estate is situated inside the revocable trust and the person dies then the successor trustee has the immediate authority to go ahead and list the property and sell it or distribute it um and and so that is an efficiency built into that structure. Uh, In addition, one of the benefits of a revocable trust is that if you should become incapacitated, so put aside for the moment that you passed away, you're still alive, but you've become incapacitated. Who manages your assets? Well, it could be a power of attorney, could be an agent under a power of attorney if you didn't do a revocable trust, or if you did, then it's going to be your trustee. Now, why is that better? Why can't we just rely on the agent under a durable power of attorney, especially since I just said a few moments ago that it's so important to have your advanced directives in place, including a durable power of attorney? So how can I advocate that on the one hand, and now I can say, well, that's not as good as a revocable trust. Here's why. Powers of attorney are great things, and they can be very broadly drafted and comprehensive in scope. There's a but, and the but is that if you the agent are not known to the third party financial institution and the power of attorney has been executed any number of years ago and some kind sometimes 10 or 20 years ago imagine just walking in off the street and presenting to a financial institution uh a power of attorney they've never met you they don't Mm -hmm. know who you are and they just have to be careful about fraud and abuse Whereas had you set up a trust account at this financial institution and the trust has been on file for as many years as the account has been open, then your name has been on record with this financial institution since the day the account was opened as a trust account. That has credibility and it makes it more seamless when you as a successor trustee go into that institution and say, hello, I'm the successor trustee. Here's my identification. Look up in your records that you have this trust on file and I need to take over the management of these assets. So planning for incapacity and planning for um, efficiencies in the distribution of assets when you die and avoidance of probate are two primary reasons why people will do revocable trusts in lieu of a will-based plan.
0: So it's not really based on assets or wealth?
1: No, I mean, I, I would say to you this. If you had ten dollars or twenty thousand dollars i don't know that i'm setting up a revocable trust but really anything fifty thousand dollars and up there's no reason why you couldn't take advantage of uh the the benefits of having a revocable trust in place once you set it up it's really not costly to administer usually it's a family member trustee usually it's yourself first followed by another family member and typically they don't want to get paid Um, if you're involving a corporate trustee and you have a sizable estate that you need to have the sophistication of a corporate trustee, well, then you clearly have enough wealth in order to be able to go in that direction.
2: What if if you have a property owned in an LLC instead?
1: So you can have a property owned in an LLC, and you can place the LLC interest inside the trust. And this is an important point, Peter, because um, oftentimes I'll be approached by a client who has a revocable trust. They come in with this fancy binder, and they're very proud that they have done their estate planning. And I look through the trust, I look through their documents, and I ask them a question. And I say, "So let me let me ask you this: What assets are in your revocable trust?" And they look at me deer in headlights, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. And so I follow up. Well, did you when you did this trust? Did you have to retitle any assets inside the trust? Can I see your bank statements? Sure enough, when when I get their bank statements, all their assets are titled in their individual names. They never move the assets into the revocable trust. And what you need to know about doing a revocable trust is that the assets will not walk themselves into your trust. You have to take affirmative action. You have to do something proactively to retitle any asset that you want in the trust to place it inside that trust. And until, so when I work with clients, I always make sure to ask them for bank statements after they funded the trust so that I can see it with my own eyes and know that a trust that I help my clients to draft and to establish has been properly funded. And look, there may be circumstances where you don't want an asset inside the trust. What are those circumstances? A couple come to mind. For example, you have a checking account, it's your operating account. You're constantly writing checks in and out, and you're depositing money in. Maybe you have Social Security benefits going in. You have a pension going in, and you just don't want to change The source of that money to a trust account because with government agencies, it could take months to get that change to be effectuated. You might have a disruption of cash flow. So sometimes people will say, you know what, my operating account, I'm not putting it in my trust. I don't need it in there. And then my response to that is, okay, but make sure you make it either a joint account or a payable on death account because. If one of the reasons why you're doing this revocable trust is to avoid probate, what a shame if the only account at your death is this one operating account that you chose not to put in, mm-hmm. and it's got a small amount of money in it. Everything else goes by through your trust, but now you've got a small balance account that must go through probate, so you're going to have probate costs anyway, anyway, but only for a very small account, and that's a shame. So that does that does happen. Another Uh, Asset uh, that you cannot put into a revocable trust is a retirement account. IRAs, any type of 401k, those cannot be owned directly by a trust. They must remain in your individual name. Now, you can name your trust as a beneficiary in lieu of individuals as long as it meets certain requirements under the Internal Revenue Code, but you cannot title the account in the name of the trust while you're alive.
0: All right. Okay. Now what about, the, what
2: about the irrevocable trust ownership of life insurance?
1: Okay, so there's a lot of different kinds of irrevocable trusts. You have an irrevocable life insurance trust which historically people have used that in order to address estate tax planning issues whereby they would purchase enough insurance to cover the anticipated estate taxes that would be due upon death and it's a wealth replacement vehicle uh, so that their estate that they have can all be distributed to their heirs and not be eaten up by estate taxes. You have a different kind of irrevocable trust known as a Medicaid asset protection trust, which we do quite a bit of. So there's this concept of a five-year look back where if you make transfers of assets, you cannot qualify for Medicaid for five years after the assets transferred. And if you want to protect your assets and still qualify for Medicaid benefits or uh, SSI benefits, you can place your assets into an irrevocable trust, wait out the applicable look back period, and then those assets are no longer accountable for Medicaid purposes. So irrevocable trusts serve different purposes depending on how they're drafted. And one other point I would make here is that When you do a revocable trust, not irrevocable, but revocable, it's really important for you to know that assets in a revocable trust are not protected assets for government benefits purposes. It must be irrevocable. You must wait out that five-year look back once you've done the irrevocable trust, and then the assets in that trust are no longer counted for. Government benefits eligibility purposes.
2: Now, as long as you as long as you addressed it, um, you want to just touch on uh, the uh, period of time if you're not in a trust about transferring of assets. Sorry,
1: the period of time
2: Sorry. that the, the, the period of time,
1: the look back period for for non trust owned
2: uh, assets.
1: So if you have non-trust assets and you are looking to qualify for any government benefits, you have to do some planning to qualify because you can't have more than $2,000 in assets. The number is actually larger in a state like New York, so that's another area where you have to be very uh, um, specific about what state you might be applying, applying in because the rules are different. But any non-trust assets, uh, any non-irrevocable trust assets, are countable towards determining whether you qualify for Medicaid eligibility, and you have to look to see whether there are any crisis planning strategies that you could utilize in order to still y- allow you to qualify within, you know, much shorter than five years. Because usually, years, when people are looking to qualify for Medicaid, they're already ill and in need of the long-term care services, and this is really a reason why people should have long-term care insurance, because. Right if you want to do planning it actually works very well with a five-year plan right you can do an irrevocable trust you can protect your assets but if you should need care during the resulting five-year look back period be really awesome if you had uh, a long-term care insurance policy that would cover you through that five-year period and beyond along with the flexibility that goes with long-term care insurance insofar as the medicaid programs in each state are very different. And when it comes to covering home care services, those programs are not comprehensive in scope. So you may have a Medicaid program that covers only four hours a day, five days a week. Well, what if you need eight hours a day? What if you need seven-day-a-week coverage? And what will you do if you're relying on the Medicaid program to pay for your care, but the scope of the coverage is not what you would what you really need and that's where long-term care insurance can be very very helpful even if you are engaging in asset protection planning
0: okay so did i just learn in the broadest of strokes or to put it another way from a 10,000 foot view how sometimes i can talk to someone on the phone who has a half a million dollars in equity in their home yet they're still on medicaid they did that future planning and got pretty much all their assets into an irrevocable trust?
1: That is possible, but I I just want to mention one thing, Michael. So the home is is a specialized asset for Medicaid purposes. Generally speaking, a home up to a certain equity value currently in Florida, it's 595,000. In New York, I think it's up to like 905,000. So it depends on the state. But if you have an equity value that's within Medicaid limits, then the home is exempt. However, there can be what's called a state recovery when you die. And so in order to protect against that and in order to protect protect against the possibility that you will want to sell your home while you're receiving care on Medicaid, because when the home's exempt, that's fine, right? doesn't count. But when you sell it, now the proceeds will count towards your Medicaid eligibility. Well, if you just owned your home outright in your individual name and it gets sold, now you have a Medicaid eligibility problem after you've already been on Medicaid for some time. Had you placed that home inside an irrevocable trust years earlier, then you have maximum flexibility to sell that home should the need arise. As well, you can avoid estate recovery in most states so that your heirs can get that asset when you die. So yes, you can be on Medicaid even though you own a home and even though you haven't done an irrevocable trust as long as it's within the Medicaid equity limits for your state. But having said that, my strong recommendation is to do planning with the homestead by placing it into an irrevocable trust so that we cover the two issues that could come up should you avail yourself of Medicaid benefits. The first issue being sale during lifetime And the second issue being an estate recovery claim by the Medicaid agency when you die.
0: Okay. Is irrevocable in its literal meaning? I put an asset in my 60s or 50s into an irrevocable trust. And then for some reason, my attorney or someone else says, no, you should have never done that. Is it truly irrevocable in its literal meaning? Sorry, it's in there until you have your next life. uh, Well,
1: all right. So the good news is, for Medicaid purposes, it is irrevocable and you cannot access the assets. Okay. However, in answer to your question, as long as, and this also depends on state law, but any combination of the grantors of the trust, the trustees and certain beneficiaries, if everyone agrees across the board to terminate that trust, or you can even do a partial revocation, which means that if you have $500,000 of assets in the trust, you can partially revoke so that $200,000 comes out. Then, upon agreement by all parties, it is possible to terminate an otherwise irrevocable trust.
0: Oh, all right. Yeah. um, You know, when I give my uh, seminars or webinars or trade shows and and you're talking about a certain topic. The only topic I have to talk about is home equity, reverse mortgages, but they tend to ask other questions. If my home is in a trust, can you close a mortgage? Of course. And then, of course, somebody's always got to ask, what's the difference between a revocable trust and an irrevocable trust? And if I'm in a very, very serious mood, I'll always go, I'm not an attorney, in no way, shape, or form, am I qualified to answer that question? If I'm in a little less of a serious mood, I always go, well, obviously, one's revocable, one's irrevocable. Next question, uh, and I'll just walk away. Um, but now I finally have some sort of an answer. It
1: only took 39 uh, to years. Give you another piece to this, Michael, then, because in a revocable trust scenario, you remain in control of your assets. So you put your assets, you title them inside the revocable trust, but... Remember who we said is usually the initial trustee of a revocable trust, the grantor, the person who created it, you, it's your assets. You can freely move around those assets. You can freely remove them from the trust. You can freely spend the money. There are no restrictions on your access to the assets in a revocable trust that you've created. On the other hand, when you create an irrevocable trust, you typically are not the trustee You typically are not a beneficiary, and therefore you have given up total control over the assets that are contained inside that trust. And that's a very scary proposition for somebody who has been managing their assets for the better part of their adult lives. And now all of a sudden they're going to create this irrevocable trust because they want to achieve asset protection planning. But on the other hand, do they really want to give up control over all of their assets? So the way we deal with that is we usually talk about a slush fund for people where we say listen if you needed to have access to a certain amount of assets but you also have this goal of achieving asset protection how much assets would you need to keep outside the irrevocable trust and it you know varies by individual but for some people it could be 20,000 50,000 100,000 250,000 whatever it is but that gives them a peace of mind of knowing that even if they put the bulk of their assets into the irrevocable trust in order to achieve that asset protection, they don't have to live like a pauper. They don't have to rely on their kids for money. They can still live in the manner that they've become accustomed to with their income and the coupling of that income with this slush fund. By the way, Michael,
2: I have a better answer
1: than, uh, when
2: I'm asked uh, that same question that you're asked.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I say um, you need to contact Howard Kroos. Howard Kroos. There's his telephone number and his information. That's, That's my right. answer.
0: That's going to be my answer from now on. Yeah, I always say the hour. I'm pl-
2: smiling, but I'm serious.
0: <laughs> the hour goes by so quick. There's only six minutes, six and a half minutes left. And there's still so many questions. I'm, I'm going to go into one that I know takes more than six minutes. You know, Medicaid is a mystery to most people. Um, you know, I'd say as a layman, um, you know, you'd think Medicaid, I, I have to say, the average person, I think, thinks very, very low-income people. Uh, the single, pregnant, unwed mom that can't get any medical attention, let's get her on Medicaid. Um, yet there are, from explanations, not just tonight, but what I see in, you know, in my other career, in my mortgage career, there are people of middle class and upper middle income realms that do use Medicaid. Um, there are different levels of Medicaid, aren't there?
1: Yeah, certainly. So um, a couple of things. You know, a nursing home in New York is about $16,000 a month. Nursing home in the South Florida area, probably around eleven thousand or so per month. So most people who own a home, which obviously is illiquid and, as we discussed, likely exempt from being counted as an asset, there are a lot of people that have maybe a hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand, five hundred thousand. They they have worked their whole lives to have the, that level of assets. It really represents everything that they have poured their heart and souls into accumulating. And the example that I would use is the following. So if we all listen to the government and we bought a home and we saved for retirement, right? So that's person A versus person B who spent every penny that they had, they rented, they don't own a home, they went on vacation, they don't have retirement money, and both people become ill through no fault of their own. Right? They have afflictions that require round-the-clock, long-term care, the kind of care that is typically provided in a skilled nursing facility. So what does the government say when you're at that point? Well, they say to person A, we're really sorry, but um, you have too much assets to qualify for this government program, so you'll have to spend down your assets and when you have less than $2,000, you certainly are welcome to come back and we will we will pay the cost of the nursing home that you're in. To person B, the person who's lived uh, perhaps beyond their means, but certainly enjoyed the ride every step of the way, the answer to that person is, sure, we'll pay for your nursing home care. And what's really the difference? Well, <laughs> one person listened to the government and said, go out and buy a home and have you know two cars in every garage. And save for retirement, but now when it comes to care, the government says, sorry, you're out of luck. Um, So Medicaid, when it was enacted back in 1965, I agree, Michael, that it was for uh, people of little to no means and who had very low income. What has happened over time is that people's longevity has increased, but it has not always increased with a high quality of life. And the cost of long-term care has become such that the average person, middle class, really cannot afford their long-term care for any extended period of time without completely wiping them out. And so uh, in my world, um, I am dealing with a lot of uh, middle-income, middle-class people who are looking to try to leave something to their loved ones, uh, in some cases, it could be a spouse. Um, I had a woman who had a home in Westchester here again in Westchester County, New York, and her husband had Alzheimer's at age sixty-four. She was a teacher, and uh, she had maybe about eight hundred thousand dollars in assets. And she, mm-hmm. you know, I was concerned that her home was worth. Uh, about $1.1 and then 800000 And I'm like, you know, this is almost $2 million in assets. I don't think I can help you. That's too much money. And so she said to me, well, I respect your decision, Howie, but before you make your final decision, let me just put this in context for you. My husband is 64 years old. Most of my money is tied up in the family home. And um, I'm a teacher, and I still have to work. So if my husband lives another 20 or 30 years with this disease, I won't have anything to live on. And so our entire life savings will be depleted on his illness and the cost of his long-term care. So that's a perfect scenario where in order to provide for a surviving spouse, in order to provide for other uh, heirs, people will look to do some planning that allows them to qualify. I still start off with, and we circle back to, if you can qualify for long-term care insurance you should because it does give you greater flexibility and choice in where you want to receive your care and the extent of the care that you can receive mm-hmm. but barring that if you if you're uninsurable or you know it's determined with your financial advisor it's not something that you can afford or you can only afford partial coverage there is this safety net called Medicaid, and it is no longer the case that it's only for those of low income and low assets.
0: Peter, do you have anything to add to that? We got fifty seconds left, um, and I'm not sure yeah, you can I, say anything in fifty we're gonna, seconds. We're going
2: to have, like you said, we're going to have to do it on another show because I did want to ask Howie, and we don't have the time of uh, how his practice has changed based on COVID, Definitely. And, and from a planning perspective, you know how. Yeah, And that's just not going to be able to be done tonight. So um, certainly, I I know people want to know about that.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I still have some more questions about Medicaid. But with a little less than 30 seconds left, Howie, thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you will come back again because there were so many more questions. Um, Peter, as always, thank you so much. Next week, we're going to have... Uh, Mr. Colin Castle, also a, um, a frequent visitor, here, hasn't been here in a while, who's the regional VP of the largest in-home care company, uh, Home Instead. Very big topic now with COVID-19. Thank you, everybody, for being here. We will see you next week.